Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Nixon's America. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Conservative Majority. Many of Nixon's domestic policies were a response to what he believed to be the demands of his constituency. Nixon called them the silent majority of conservative, mostly middle-class people who, he believed, wanted to reduce federal interference in local affairs. Nixon also sought to pick up the pieces of the New Deal coalition. As we described in a previous lecture, Nixon employed the Southern strategy, which aimed at turning conservative and moderate Democrats into Republicans by opposing civil rights and promoting cultural conservatism. By combining this with the Kid Lash, limited government, states' rights, and social and cultural traditionalism, he believed he could marshal forth an emerging Republican majority. Nixon also hoped to lock in the blue-collar North into this conservative coalition. The first way he did this was by opposing busing. While Nixon did not veto civil rights laws, his administration opposed the chief means by which schools were to be integrated, i.e. busing. Due to various cultural and economic reasons, certain neighborhoods in the North were often dominated by a particular ethnic group. This, in turn, led to overwhelmingly black or white schools. So rather than target funding measures, politicians had selected a more palatable solution, at least to the elites of busing kids from other neighborhoods into white schools. So again, you're not trying to make all schools better by reallocating funds. Instead, you go for tokenism, busing in working-class kids to black schools and vice versa. Nixon's opposition to busing resonated with Archie Bunker-like blue-collar northerners, since busing aroused anger from outspoken northern racists. Nixon also tried, unsuccessfully, to persuade Congress to pass legislation prohibiting school desegregation through the use of forced busing. Again, this appealed to Northerners, who hated the idea of their children being shipped off to different schools. In order to fight busing, de facto segregationists argued that decisions of school choice should be left to the parents and locally elected school boards instead of government bureaucrats. Political campaigns depicted busing as the epitome of intrusive and out-of-control government, and it portrayed liberalism as an ideology that pushed people around in the interest of some abstract social goal. Nixon also prevented further integration when he forbade the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare from cutting off federal funds from school districts that had failed to comply with court orders to desegregate. So as you can see, people against integration began flocking to Nixon's conservative coalition that would maintain segregation in all but name. Nixon also wanted to harness blue-collar anger by challenging permissiveness. And again, this is related to the kid lash and the cultural traditionalism that is against the sexual revolution. Nixon also continued Barry Goldwater's strategy of populist conservatism. He framed everything as a fight between middle America's silent majority and pointy-headed liberal special interests or civil rights special interests. While Nixon did a lot to create this conservative coalition, Democrats also lent a hand. For instance, 
the Democratic Party, after the debacle of the 1968 convention, changed convention rules and thereby weakened the party machinery. If you recall, parties always help turn out the vote. So when these rules change, it means party players have less power to broker and make deals. And this is why Democrats appear more divided internally than Republicans. Democrats believed these changes in the recent 26th Amendment, which lowered the voting age from 21 to 18, would help account for the abandonment of other constituencies that we discussed. The idea behind the amendment was it would supposedly increase the voting for Democrats, and this would then give them the edge. Unlucky for them, younger Americans typically do not vote in large numbers, as do older Americans. The point is that Nixon is building a brand new conservative coalition, and while he moves politics to the right, he is going to fail to move governance that way, until men, like Ronald Reagan, take the helm of the party and move it in a new direction. Please advance to the next slide entitled, One Giant Leap for Mankind. Perhaps the greatest legacy of the Cold War is humankind's efforts to slip the surly bounds of Earth and to touch the face of God. This occurred during the space race from 1957 to 1975 between the Soviet Union and the United States. As you may recall, on October 4, 1957, the Soviets launched the world's first artificial satellite called Sputnik, and Americans panicked because they thought the Soviets could attach missiles to it. After Sputnik 2 was launched, Americans believed that there was a missile gap and that the Soviets had supremacy in technology. This theory was seemingly confirmed on April 12, 1961, when the Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, became the first human being in space. As a result, NASA began the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. These are U.S. space programs that built on one another in order to counter what the Soviets were doing and to accomplish the ultimate goal of landing an American on the moon, which JFK had enunciated during his administration. Most of the guys involved were test pilots for experimental aircraft, and just think of the courage it takes to willingly get in the cockpit of a plane to see if the dang thing will fly. As a quick aside, the Mercury and Gemini programs were built from scratch. So think of it this way. Everything you do usually refers back to some manual or best practices. Well, these guys literally write the manual for space travel. They get into a room and say, all right, what does it take to get to a launch? What are the policies and procedures? What training is needed? What equipment is needed? And etc. This is an extremely impressive feat. And I had the great fortune to hear Jim Lovell of the Apollo 13 mission and a member of both the Mercury and Gemini programs discuss how difficult it was to get these programs off the ground. It literally was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, anyway, in 1962, John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. And in 1965, Alexei Leonov became the first man to conduct a spacewalk, which is where you get out of a spaceship and float in outer space, which would freak me out. That same year, Ed White became the first American to conduct a spacewalk. Later on, White and fellow astronauts Virgil Gus Grissom and Roger B. Chaffee died 
when Apollo 1 burned on the ground. But the United States did not give in to fear. Instead, she continued her efforts to reach the moon, and each successive mission built on the next, first making orbit, then how to disengage a craft, how to re-engage it with other spaceship parts, and then how to get to the moon and back. On December 21st, 1968, Apollo 8 brought the first humans to orbit the moon, and these men said the experience was indescribable, as to witness and photograph an Earthrise and to escape the gravity of a celestial body. The major turning point in human history occurred on July 20th, 1969, when Apollo 11 descended from orbit with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, becoming the first humans to land on the moon. To this day, the United States is the only nation in the world who has sent humans to another celestial body, though the Soviets did send probes to Venus. Subsequent missions were sent to the room, though they became less popular over time, as Americans have very small attention spans. A key change in the space race occurred in July 1975 with the Apollo-Suyez test project. This created the first U.S.-Soviet joint spaceflight, and cooperation between the two nations increased in the 1990s, but has recently cooled due to the rise of Putin's Russia. One last major achievement I want to share is the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 space probes. In 1977, the United States sent two unmanned probes, Voyager 1 and 2, to investigate the large gas planets beyond the asteroid belt. They took the first ever pictures of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, as well as the minor planet of Pluto. Then they set out on the last stage of their mission, to cross into interstellar space. In the last few years, both spacecraft crossed the Kepler belt and into the heliopause and heliosphere, which is in the outer reaches of our solar system. By 2019, both spacecrafts officially entered interstellar space. These are the first and only spacecraft made by humans to do so, and it is arguably humankind's single greatest achievement. On board the Voyager spacecraft, Carl Sagan and other NASA scientists placed a golden record that contained information about humankind as well as some of our greatest cultural productions. One of these was from a poor jazz musician in the 1930s called Blind Willie Johnson. In his song, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, was chosen because, as Sagan put it, quote, Johnson's song concerns a situation humans faced many times, nightfall with no place to sleep. Since humans appeared on Earth, the shroud of night has yet to fall without touching a man or a woman in the same plight. Even though Johnson died impoverished and relatively unknown, his voice will continue to sing across the stars, even after the Earth is destroyed when our sun turns into a red giant billions of years from now. And I really like that story. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Environmentalism. Does anyone recall some of the first major government involvement with protecting the environment? That's right, our good friend Teddy Roosevelt and his national parks under conservation. Well, Americans had not taken very good care of the environment in the decades since then. By the 1970s, the United States suffered from deforestation, 
pollution, and the overuse of chemicals. Smog in the cities was endemic, which caused a rise in cases of asthma, lung cancer, and other ailments. The picture on the PowerPoint is of Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, Ohio, which caught on fire because of so many toxic chemicals were dumped into it. Just think about that. A river is so polluted that it catches fire. This is how bad things had gotten. While people recognized pollution was a problem, they did not realize how new chemicals that protected food from insects could cause health issues. This was brought to light with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and Carson argued that the massive use of pesticides was harmful to humans. Please click the clip on the PowerPoint to see a video of children being sprayed with DDT, which is a poisonous chemical. Taken together, as Americans grew more concerned about the environment, they protested to make their voices heard. On April 22, 1970, the first Earth Day occurred, when 22 million Americans took off work and school to demand greater action to protect the environment and public health. The massive outpouring of support for regulation to rein in poison chemicals, clear-cutting, and water pollution resulted in the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA issued regulations to contain pollution and chemical usage, as well as to provide oversight of private and public actions that could damage animal species. Now with all things, the EPA can sometimes be burdensome and problematic. But by and large, since the 1970s, the EPA has been critical in protecting Americans' air, water, and natural resources from pollution and overuse. Despite this progress, there are still many problems, like the constant oil spills that we see in Exxon Valdez in the 1980s, Deepwater Horizon a few years back, which by the way is still silently spilling huge amounts of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, and as a final example, the Standing Rock Pipeline, which spilled oil on native land after its construction. In addition, heavy tankers create polluted sea lanes which are dead zones for sea life. And we even see radiation plumes from the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan slowly make their way across the Pacific Ocean, irradiating countless aquatic species. The point is that we cannot survive as a species if we destroy our oceans and water supply. Please advance to the next slide entitled, New Deal Conservative. Nixon's conduct also suggests that he was not a modern conservative, but a transitional figure. Nixon creates the EPA and supports some New Deal programs. However, he did reduce or dismantle many of the social programs of the Great Society and the New Frontier. For instance, in 1973, he abolished the Office of Economic Opportunity, which was a centerpiece of the anti-poverty program of the Johnson years. In contrast to that conservative move, Nixon ordered the first affirmative action program for workers on federally funded projects, and, in one of his administration's boldest efforts, was an attempt to overhaul the nation's welfare system. Nixon proposed replacing the existing welfare system with what he called the Family Assistance Plan. In effect, it would have created a guaranteed annual income for all Americans, about $1,600 in federal grants, which could be supplemented by outside earnings up to $4,000. So in 
So this is very similar to Dr. Francis Townsend's push during the New Deal and is also similar to recent presidential candidate Andrew Yang's position as both individuals advocated for guaranteed income. Despite the fact that the FAP won approval in the House in 1970, the bill failed in the Senate. One more point we should note. Nixon became the first president since Truman to propose a plan for national health insurance, which would contain an employer mandate and public option, which is very similar to Obamacare. Unfortunately, just like the FAP, this likewise made no progress in Congress. So the point is that while Nixon moves politics to the right, he has not yet moved governance that way. That job would be saved for Ronald Reagan. Please advance to the next slide entitled, University Protests. We are now going to turn to the fallout from Nixon's conduct of the Vietnam War, as he had promised peace with honor. So you should recall that he wanted greater participation in the war from Arvin, and this policy was called Vietnamization. Nixon also ramped up bombing of the North, but decreased troop levels slowly. This led to a lot of discontent soldiers, since no one wants to be the last man to die in a useless war. At home, since the early days of the Vietnam War, students had staged sit-in protests on college campuses but the invasion of Cambodia increased student protests across the country. This led to two major shootings on college campuses by American troops just two weeks from one another. On May 4, 1970, the Kent State Massacre occurred. This is where the Ohio National Guard opened fire on students protesting Vietnam, which left four students killed and nine wounded. And there's a clip on the PowerPoint you can watch. Then, on May 15, 1970, the Jackson State killings occurred, when two students were killed and 12 injured in another shooting. Most Americans have heard of Kent State, but few have heard of Jackson State. Does anyone want to guess why? That's right. Jackson State is a historically black university, so the nation paid more attention to white kids being killed than black ones. In total, the shootings in the Cambodian invasion led to widespread unrest on college campuses across the nation. 1,300 universities experienced strikes, and 500 closed their doors. This later created a backlash against students. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Foreign Competition. You may not realize it, but many Americans believe the United States' economic issues that we deal with today stem from recent policies. In fact, we see a longer-term change in the American economy occur in the 1970s due to the transformation of the nation's manufacturing sector. Ever since the Second World War, American industry had enjoyed relatively little competition from the rest of the world due to the destruction. By the end of the 1960s, however, both Europe and Japan had recovered from the damage that their manufacturing sectors had absorbed during the Second World War. A decade later, these regions were providing stiff competition to American firms in the sale of automobiles, steel, and many other products, both in world markets and within the United States. Due to the rise in competition, 
some American corporations failed and closed their doors, and some managed to avoid paying the duly owed pensions to workers, which left many in the cold. Other corporations restructured themselves to become more competitive in world markets. In the process, they closed many older plants and eliminated hundreds of thousands of once lucrative manufacturing jobs. Manufacturing firms also sought to lower labor costs, and they did this through automation, downsizing, and relocating to the Sun Belt, which had business-friendly policies like lower tax rates, anti-union right-to-work laws, and lower wages. The entire process is called deindustrialization, which is when manufacturing jobs go away and where the U.S. transitions away from a producing economy and towards a service sector economy. The old days of getting a high school diploma and then getting a job with a livable wage, benefits, and retirement, as well as being able to send your kid to school, is over. And this particularly hurt workers and unions to this day. The point is that the high-wage, high-employment industrial economy that had been a central fact of the American life since the 1940s was gradually disappearing, and more and more blue-collar workers were seeing their pay and benefits decrease, which has been steadily continuing over the last 50 years. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Foreign Competition. Occurring simultaneously with deindustrialization, the cost of living rose to a cumulative 15% during Nixon's first two and a half years in office. Economic growth, in the meantime, declined, so the United States was encountering a new dilemma, stagflation. This is a combination of rising prices and general economic stagnation. In the summer of 1971, Nixon imposed a 90-day freeze on all wages and prices at their existing levels. And as you can see, this is not a free market move. It is government intervention in the economy, much like FDR had done with his bank freeze during the New Deal. Then in November, Nixon launched the second phase of his economic plan, which set mandatory guidelines for some wage and price increases to be administered by a federal agency. And this is huge and had not been done since the Great Depression. And as you can tell, this is not very conservative by today's standards. Combined, these two moves caused inflation to temporarily subside, but the recession continued. Nixon was fearful that the recession would be more damaging than inflation in an election year, so the administration reversed itself in late 1971. It then produced a new move. Interest rates were allowed to drop sharply, and government spending increased, which produced the largest budget deficit since World War II. These new tactics helped revive the economy in the short term, but inflation rose substantially. But again, as we see, Nixon is acting like a new dealer, not like a Goldwater free market conservative. Then in November 1973, Nixon appeared on television to inform Americans that energy had become a, quote, serious national problem. Nixon further said that the United States was headed towards, quote, the most acute shortages of energy since World War II. Well, what caused this? Well, the previous month, Arab members of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, 
which is a cartel of the world's leading oil producers, to begin an embargo on oil exports to the United States in retaliation for American intervention in the Yom Kippur War when several Arab nations had launched a sneak attack on Israel. This embargo launched the first U.S. energy crisis. And by the end of 1973, the global price of oil had quadrupled. This led to gas lines, where drivers waited in line for hours to fill up their cars on pre-approved days based on their license plate numbers. But I just want to point out that while this starts in 1973, it is more commonly associated with the late 1970s under Jimmy Carter, and many blame the Democrats and Jimmy Carter to this day for this problem. But as we see, it actually started under the Republican president, Richard Nixon. The point is that America's collective inebriation due to excessive wealth was coming to an end, and many middle-class Americans were coming to experience the economic insecurity that the lower classes had struggled through for decades. Please advance to the next slide entitled Foreign Policy. The continuing war in Vietnam provided an unhappy backdrop to what Nixon considered his larger mission in world affairs, the construction of a new international order. The president had become convinced that the old assumptions of a bipolar world in which the United States and the Soviet Union were the only great powers was now obsolete. Instead, Nixon believed that America must adapt to the new multipolar international structure in which China, Japan, and Western Europe were becoming major independent forces. This is interesting, considering that Nixon had built his career on his anti-communist credentials. This means that Nixon had a considerable advantage over many other politicians in changing the assumptions behind American foreign policy, because his long anti-communist record gave him credibility among many conservatives for his efforts to transform American relations with communist China and the Soviet Union. So only Nixon could do this. In July 1971, Nixon sent Henry Kissinger on a secret mission to Beijing. When Kissinger returned, the president made the startling announcement that he would visit China himself within the next few months. That fall, with American approval, the United Nations admitted the communist government of China and expelled the representatives of the Taiwan regime. Finally, in February 1972, Nixon paid a formal visit to China and personally met an aged Mao Zedong. This visit erased much of the deep animosity between the United States and Chinese communists. These initiatives in China coincided with an effort by the Nixon administration to improve relations with the Soviet Union, and this is known by the French word détente. This basically makes the Cold War more safe and less likely for a nuclear war to start. In 1971, American and Soviet diplomats produced the first Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, or SALT-1. This froze the arsenals of some nuclear missiles and ICBMs on both sides at their present levels. And in May of that year, Nixon traveled to Moscow to sign the agreement, and the following year, the Soviet premier, Lenod Brezhnev, visited Washington. So as we can see, on the one hand, Nixon asserted the supremacy of American democratic capitalism 
and conceded that the U.S. would continue supporting its allies financially. However, he denounced previous administrations' willingness to commit American forces to third world conflicts and warned other states to assume responsibility for their own defense. So he's turning America away from the policy of active anti-communist containment. And in the process, he gave a new cause to arch-conservatives who decried detente in nuclear talks. The point is that by 1973, after almost 30 years of Cold War tension, peaceful coexistence suddenly seemed possible. So for all of Nixon's problems, he was able to improve international relations, and in addition, this will illustrate that some people can yell one thing in public and then embark on a different strategy in private. I'm going to cut the lecture off here, and we will pick up with Richard Nixon's re-election in part two. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.